Now, uh, tonight's lesson is broken down into two main points, and those two main points are what is the Bible, and number two, how to read the Bible. So our first one is what is the Bible? If we're talking about the things that a Christian needs to know, basics for believers, our first lesson is, well, what is a believer? And then our second one is, let's talk about the Bible. What is the Bible? And then how do we read the Bible? So first off, we need to talk about what the Bible is, and we will consider internal claims. What does the Bible say about itself? Well, the Bible claims to be revelation from God. It claims to be God revealing himself to mankind. Um, There's a lot of different sayings out there that you will hear in different churches, different types of churches over the course of uh, hundreds of years of American church history. And you'll you'll hear acronyms and and see things like, well, the Bible is B-I-B-L-E, basic instruction before leaving earth. That's not great. That's, that's That's not a great definition. Uh, it, it's trying to be cutesy. It's like, that is not what whoever came up with the word Bible, which the word Bible did not come from the Bible. It came from outside of that afterwards. Like you're not going to read the Bible. You're not going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John or find, find the word Bible in it. Cause the word Bible just means book. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Moses, none of those people had in mind this acronym, basic instruction before leaving earth. They're like, oh, let's call it the Bible. And it'll stand, no, that's not what that means. So what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is God's self-revelation to us, to people. But the Bible also speaks of two kinds of revelation. There's general revelation and special revelation. Uh, We're not going to read every single one of these um, scripture passages, but they're there. So if you want to look them up later, you can, or if you want to jot them down or anything. Um, But Psalm 19 is the classic text for this, Psalm 19. Um, Most of these passages that we'll discuss tonight or, or in this first section, they are the types of passages that you as a Christian, not a pastor, but just a regular Christian should know the Bible well enough that if someone asks you these types of questions related to general revelation and special revelation, that you would know to say, oh, Psalm 19. That's the text. There's others, but that's the number one. There's no better text that describes general revelation and special revelation. So Psalm 19, what does it say? Well, says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day into day utter speech. Night into night proclaims knowledge. There's no speech, no language where the voice is not heard. Their line goes out to the ends of the earth. In them he set a tabernacle for the sun and a whole bunch of other, something about a strong man runs to win, it, win, uh, win the race. What is that talking about? That's talking about the truth of God, the glory of God that is visible in the created world. That's also referenced in Romans 1. So those would be your two main texts that you should know with reference to general revelation. Now, Psalm 19 also speaks of special revelation, which is not just this general truth about the glory of God, the power of God, uh, things like that, but special revelation uh, speaks in particular with a, a narrower focus about who God is, and that's described there at the end of Psalm 19. Uh, So we need to first acknowledge general and special revelation, but then we move to point two, inspiration. So inspiration, there is no more 
primary text on inspiration than 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Can anyone quote that for me? Does anyone know it? If, you, if so, please raise your hand. All right, it goes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, for in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works in the King James-ish Andy version. I think the King James says thoroughly, which we don't know what that means, but thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the, all scripture is inspired by God, is given by inspiration of God. What does that mean? It means breathed out by God. That's why your ESV says breathed out by God. So that's the word inspired, in spirit, or expired. It's breathed out, ex out, spired, spiration, breath, wind, etc. So the inspiration of God is that God has breathed out his word through the hand of the apostles, the prophets, the, the authors of scripture. And that's where it came from. Scripture did not come from people having a really good day. When we speak of inspiration, we're not speaking of inspiration like, oh, Shakespeare's writings are so inspiring, or uh, MLK's speeches are so inspiring and they make me feel something. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about breathed out by God. That's what inspiration means. Um, our next text is 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Um, Hopefully this is the right text. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but what's happening in that verse in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16 is that Peter is calling Paul's writings scripture. That's important for this whole discussion. How do we know that Paul's writings are scripture? When we say scripture, we mean the word of God, the inspired, inerrant word of God. How do we know that? Well, the Bible has this thing called the, the, um, the self uh in my notes later on, this self-attestation or something. It references itself, it calls itself the Bible. And this is one of these texts, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where it refers to internally, one author will refer to another author as writing scripture. Another example of this is 1 Timothy 5, 18, which says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the labor, laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, what is happening in this text? This is Paul's writing, 1 Timothy 5.18, but Paul is saying, the scripture says, and then he has two quotes there in this verse. Those two quotes are from Deuteronomy 25, Moses, and Luke 10, 7. So Paul is putting Moses and Luke on equal grounds and calling them both scripture. This is significant. You might not see the big deal because you just assume, well, of course it's the word of God. But this is one of your proof texts that you need 
to support the idea that the Bible refers to itself as scripture, that it all is the word of God. And there are these internal cross-references within arguing for its inspiration. Now, our next point is inerrancy. If the Bible, if the word of God is breathed out by God, then it stands to reason that it is right and true. But we're not just working with, um, I'm not sure if my, I think my reference in my notes is wrong, but uh, we're, not, we're not just working with a, a logical deduction, we're also working with explicit instruction in the Bible. So 2 Peter 2, 16 through 21 says, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's the issue. If, this, if these are fairy tales, these things are made up or they're just sort of like theories, that's an entirely different situation than the religion of the Bible. We did not follow these fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we were, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. What is that a reference to? It's the transfiguration. So the transfiguration, Jesus is on uh, the Mount of Olives and he is transfigured and they see his, his uh, glory, his eternal glory in a fairly unfiltered way. And that's what is being referenced right here. That experience that they had observing Jesus in his ex- exaltation and his glory when the father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We heard this voice from heaven on the holy mountain, and so we have the and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you will do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, what's happening in these verses is that he's saying that um, this word in front of you in your hands, this word of prophecy is more sure than that experience that they had on the Mount of Transfiguration. That experience of them seeing Jesus face to face with their eyes while holding what we would call the Bible in your hands is more sure than that. No prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's keep moving to our next point, authority, the authority of the word of God. If it is from God, it's breathed out by God and it's true, then it stands to reason that it bears authority so much so that we actually need to listen to it. We need to follow what it says. Now, there are so many references that we could reference where in the Old Testament, for example, it says, and God said. Like there's thousands of those types of references. But the one I've listed here is Luke 4.8. Do you know what that is? Luke 4.8 or Luke 4 is Jesus's temptation. So remember when Jesus is tempted by Satan, Satan comes to him and is, is twisting scripture and lying. And then he says, what Jesus says, it is written. And he quotes a couple different passages 
And so he is pushing back. He's fighting against Satan with the authority of the word of God. This brings us next into our, into our next point, uh, infallibility. There's a song that we used to sing when I was a little kid. God's word shall never fail, never fail, never fail. God's word shall never fail. No, no, no. If God's word is true, if God's word is inspired by him, if it has authority, it will not fail or fall. The entire book or the entire chapter of Psalm 119 is devoted to speaking about the word of God. It's 170 some verses. We don't have time to read it right now, but it is very clear that the word of God is true. It is sure. It is certain. Now, when you're doing reading, if you're reading um, theological books, um, especially kind of modern theology, and you come across um, the, the term infallibility, people will often say, well, I believe in the infallibility of Scripture, but they don't want to say they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. It's oftentimes a, uh, what the guy I know, he calls them weasel words. A weasel word is, instead of speaking truth and open plainness, instead they use these other words they can kind of twist. Because what does infallibility mean? Well, it means it can't fail. Okay, that's good. God's word won't fail. So I just want to tell you, it's true that the word of God is infallible and it will not fail. But I also want to warn you, if you run into modern, um, somewhat progressive um, theology books and they they say, we believe in the infallibility of scripture, you're probably dealing with a moderate and a moderate in theological terms is a liberal. Um, Next, preservation. If the word of God came If the Bible came from the inspiration of God, it is truly the word of God. It is without error. It is authoritative. It will never fail. Then God will also preserve it. Matthew 5, 17 and 18 argues for that point. It says that not one jot, not one tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. In other words, these these words jot and tittle. These are references to tiny portions of the Hebrew letters that indicate the difference between one Hebrew letter and another Hebrew letter. So think with me about um, an I and a lowercase l. What's the difference between an I and a lowercase l? Just a little dot. Well, in Hebrew, there's a lot of things like that as well. So when it says, not a jot will pass away, well, that's like dropping off that I that changes the difference between an I and a lowercase l. So God will preserve his word, and he has preserved his word. Now, if you've grown up in uh, the extremely conservative end of the um, Christian stream, uh, and you're in like fundamentalism, IFB, or extremely conservative Southern Baptist circles, you will encounter uh, King James-only people. And what is King James onlyism? Well, it's a very complicated thing, but basically the idea is that the the only word of God is the King James version. And they're really big on this point of preservation. They say that the KJV is God's preserved word and no other word is, is not a version, it's a perversion, that sort of thing. 
Uh, it is not true. It is not true that God has preserved his word only in one particular manuscript or one particular family of manuscripts, but rather God has preserved his word through the entirety of the body of manuscripts. But we'll talk about manuscripts in a little bit. So let's keep moving. Point B, what books should be in the Bible? Canonicity. So we need to talk about canonicity. Um, what does the word canon mean? Well, it means rule, like a, like a ruler, yardstick, tape measure. Not a gun on a ship or a camera, but it's a, a measuring stick. So this question of what books should be in the Bible, I meant to list them out here just for, just for fun, but um, we have 66 books. And those are the ones that should be in the Bible. We have 39 Old Testament books and 27 New Testament books. This is why these are listed for us in our Confession of Faith. In the 1689, it says, these are the books of the Old Testament, and names them. And then these are the books of the New Testament, and it names them. Well, why is that? Well, it's part of the name 1689. This was written in 1689. And who were the people who wrote it? Well, they're folks who came out of the Church of England. What is the Church of England? Well, we call that the Anglican Church. In America, we call it the Episcopalian Church. And what do we call that? Well, it's like a slightly reformed version of the Roman Catholic Church. Or some would call them Anglo-Catholics. Or There's a wide range. But basically, in a lot of Anglicanism, they don't have 66 books. They have more than 66 books. Why? Because they're basically Catholics who have a little bit of Protestantism. So that's why it's addressed specifically in our Confession of Faith, as well as I believe the Westminster also names the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, um, let's talk about chapters. Do you know how many chapters there are in the Bible? Raise your hand if you know the answer. Oh, 1,159. Good job. Did anyone else know that? I just, yeah, Trenton, Trenton almost knew it. Um, so there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Hopefully you will all know that next week when we do our, our quiz. Um, these chapter divisions are not original. So if somebody tries to get you onto like numerology and stuff, just say, no, thank you. We're not doing that. The writers of scripture did not have some kind of numerical Bible code in mind when they wrote the Bible. Because the chapter divisions were added hundreds of years, if thousands of years, after they wrote it. So don't look for some sort of mystical secret meaning in like, oh, well, did you know that, you know, this, like John 3.33 means this and Acts 3.33 means like, no, that's not a special message from God. Just discard that completely. Don't even give it space in your brain. Chapter and verse divisions are not original. They are not inspired by God. What that also means is in your Bibles you have in front of you, some of them are in paragraph form and others are in list form. The ones that are in paragraph form, such as the ESV, um, New King James, and just a lot of other Bibles, in that paragraph form, sometimes they will have a paragraph division that starts in the middle of a verse. 
And if you look at that and you say, oh, well, I thought the, the verse started, well, the, the verse number did start in that other place, but that verse number maybe could have been placed somewhere else by the guy who put it in there, but he didn't, and it's just where things are today. So don't let that cause you problems or confusion. Uh, chapter divisions were added by a guy named Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1200s. Uh, versification was added to the Old Testament by Jewish scribes around A.D. 900, so some 1,000 years after the time of Christ, uh, 900 years later. Um, Robert Estienne added the verses to the New Testament in the 1500s. Now, if, you're, if you take a, a New Testament intro class, and they, they should talk about this if they're actually teaching things related to New Testament intro, um, they'll, they'll reference how, well, you know, why some of these chapter and verse divisions are so awkwardly placed is because the guy who wrote them, the guy who inserted them did it while he was riding a horse. And I heard this story and I'm like, I'm not sure if that's true or not. So I did a little digging, a little research to try to find, number one, is that true? And then number two, if it's not true, where did that idea come from? And if it just, just what's going on here? Um, There's a guy named Casper uh, Gregory. He wrote in his book, The Canon and Text of the New Testament. Um, this guy named Henry, who's the son of Robert Estien, who added the versification. Um, Henry used the words, while writing, in Latin, inter equitendum. And it has sometimes been supposed that he actually did it while jogging or joggling or along the road upon the back of his horse. Yet I do not think that he did that or that his son Henry says that he did that. It seems to me to be more likely that the words while riding simply means that he did it in the breaks of his long ride. When he got up in the morning, he may have done something before he set out. During the morning, he may have rested a while at a wayside inn. And certainly at noon, he would have done so. And at night, he doubtless divided away until it was his time to sleep. Now, this author says... No, it wasn't done literally while riding on a horseback. It was done while taking breaks from this ride. He was going from one city to another, and he's got all these manuscripts, and he's just like putting periods and numbers and all this in his, in his manuscript. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because he was a printer. This man had a printing business, and so he's trying to help with his printing process by adding verse divisions. I think the argument that this was done during breaks on his horseback journey is no stronger of an argument than that he literally did it while bouncing up and down on the back of a horse. I think either one are equally strong, if not stronger, just to say, yeah, he did it while he was riding on a horse, because it literally says in Latin, interim equitendum, which means while riding, like he wrote I did this while I was writing. So if someone tells you the chapter and verse divisions or the verse divisions was added while he was riding on a horse, and then someone who's a sophomore in Bible college comes up to you and says, actually, that's not what happened because my professor said, there's just as much strength to the argument that it was on the back of a horse as that it was during his lunch break. So that's the background on that. Now, um, let me ask you, raise your hand. I kind of want to just call on somebody. Um, raise your hand if you can recite the books of the Bible 
in order. All right, so Trenton, let's hear it. Stand up and give it a shot. Stand up, stand up. There's 12 people here, stand up. <laughs> Start it with Genesis. He, he fit the Battle of Jericho. Samuel. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings. First and second Chronicles. All right. So thank you for being a good sport. Thank you for trying. Now, let me just, let me just say, yeah, there's song, go with the songs, but let me just say that um, if you took uh, personal spiritual disciplines class with Donald Whitney at Southern Seminary, Donald Whitney is the guy who has like invented the field of personal spiritual disciplines. Like, um, sort of like Str- uh, Stradivarius, like developed the field of playing the violin. Um, like Don Whitney is the guy on this topic, and so this topic of studying, knowing, meditating on scripture, and all this, he makes all of his students take a test, a written test, and in that test, it includes things like write the Ten Commandments in order correctly write the books of the Bible in order, correctly, spelled correctly. Just a bunch of these types of things that are literally, are you smarter than a fifth grader Sunday school type questions? Like these are not the deep things of the mysteries of God. This is Bible quiz 101 type material. But I'm trying to help Trenton feel better. Most of the people in that class who are seminary students training to be pastors bombed this test. In a bad way. They did terrible. They did terribly on this test. (laughs) So, I would like it if you all memorized the books of the Bible in order. Find, maybe maybe Mindy can pull up her favorite song and send it to you all. Um, There's lots of these songs. So, Next, let's go to the Apocrypha and Pseudopigrapha. So if we started in the shallow end of the pool, we started at the zero-entry pool where you just kind of roll in and there's no ledge. Now we're in the more bizarre things. So we have the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, I referenced, there's the 66 books of the Bible, which I didn't list on the slide, but apparently I should have. Beyond those 66 books, there are these extra books, these 14 books that we call the Apocrypha. These are 14 intertestamental books, which are added by the Roman Catholic Church. They're mostly history, but there is some fiction as well. So when we say intertestamental, we mean if you have a literal physical Bible, which I would encourage everyone to have a printed Bible, um, You have the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1, and then you turn back and you have this in-between page. This is what we call 
the intertestamental period. Now, in terms of time in history, this is 400 years. These two pages, that's 400 years, and it goes from Malachi to Matthew. This intertestamental period, stuff happened, but it was also a silent time where there was no word from the Lord given. There were no prophets coming and speaking But stuff happened, and that stuff is, uh, some of it is recorded in these apocryphal books. So I've got them listed, and you can read them for yourself. Uh, Read the titles if you would like. The, um, The important one is the book of Maccabees. The Maccabees... Uh, There's four of them, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees. These record particularly the Jewish revolt. So when the Jews were under the uh, oppression of the Roman Empire, they had the Maccabean revolt. If you've heard of, um, what's the the mountain um, there in the southern part of Israel where there was the the fortress, Masada. So if you, you've heard of Masada, Masada was this, this last hideout, this last stand of the Jews against the, uh, the Romans and the, the part of the Maccabean revolt. Uh, so these books in the Maccabees uh, describe this in the Jewish wars. Um, well, Josephus wrote the Jewish wars, but nevertheless. Um, just for fun, sometime you should read Bell and the Dragon. Bell and the Dragon is spelled B-E-L, not B-E-L-L, just one L. Bell and the Dragon is um, an addition to the book of Daniel. So if you have a Roman Catholic Bible, just flip to the book of Daniel, look at the end of it, uh, and you will see this story about Bell and the Dragon. When you read it, you will realize this is, this is a fairy tale. This is completely different in its quality of, of writing, completely of a different nature than the book of Daniel. It would literally be like um, if if I'm reading a I don't know some some great work of literature, and then at the end of it have one of Baby Andrew's picture books attached, and so you finish reading about like Homer's Odyssey or something, the Iliad, and then you turn the page, and then it says. Cat, C-A-T, cat. Next page, dog, D-O-G, dog. And it's got these pictures and you're just like, whoa, this is, this is different than what I was just reading. That's, that, that's a simple and, and frail, faulty way of describing the difference between the quality of the writing of Bell and Dragon and the actual inspired word of God in the book of Daniel. So if you have any questions about like, well, how do we know if a book is supposed to be in the Bible versus not supposed to be in the Bible? Well, if you read them, you can see for yourself pretty easily. Um, Now, moving on, there's a thing called pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha means literally false writing uh, or, or false authorship. There are a lot of these. There's 50 of them. Well, there's 50 listed for New Testament pseudepigraphical books. Plus, there's Old Testament, plus intertestamental books, plus Gnostic books, plus Dead Sea Scroll books. There's all kinds of these books which are written under fake authorship. So you've heard of Gospel of Thomas, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Gospel of Mary. 
as if the Gospel of Thomas was written by Thomas, or as if the Epistle of Barnabas was written by Barnabas, or the Gospel of Mary written by Mary. They weren't. They were written long after they died by people who were not them, claiming to be them, in order to hit the bestseller list in the local bookshops. Pseudopigrapha, there's dozens and dozens of these pseudopigraphical books, but they're They're false. They're not written by who they claim to be written by. Now, technically, technically, if you go on this pseudopigrapha.com website, you will find things listed in that list. I don't think they should be there. I don't think they're actually pseudopigrapha. I think they're just early Christian writings, such as the Apostles' Creed. Technically, that is considered pseudepigrapha because it wasn't written by the apostles. It was written quite a while after the apostles, you know, hundreds of years afterwards. Uh, there's books like the Didache. I believe the Didache is listed there. The Didache is, is true. It's good. Just like the Apostles' Creed is true and good, but it's not the word of God. Uh, Shepherd of Hermes, also true and good and contains lots of scriptural references, but it is not the word of God. It's a compilation of passages of the word of God, but it's not, it's not its own original work like the book of Matthew or something. So you need to be aware of this just in case you happen to own a television or you ever watch the History Channel or you ever see something about uh, the Gospel of Thomas or these books that were hidden or lost or there's been corruption or changing. Uh, I don't want you to be caught off guard by that. I don't want you to be surprised if you take Religion 101 at NYU and the professor gets up and says, oh, well, there were all these other Bible, these other books which were selectively removed from the Bible because they didn't um, go along with the Jesus tradition. Well, it's true they didn't go along with the Jesus tradition. And the reason they didn't go along with the Jesus tradition is because they're not part of it and they're written under false authorship hundreds of years later. By the way, Matthew wrote Matthew. Mark wrote Mark. Luke wrote Luke. Paul wrote the letters of Paul. If you encounter a, a teacher, a theologian who says that those things are not true, do not continue to take that person's instruction. That's, that's one of the simplest and clearest ways to discern whether or not you're listening to a conservative theologian or a liberal theologian. Because conservatives believe that the stated author of a book was the author of the book. And a liberal will look at it and say, well, I know it says Peter wrote First and Second Peter, and I know it says Paul wrote for Second Timothy and Titus, but he didn't because it's a different style and the wording is different. That's nonsense. The reason why the wording is different is because it has a different purpose than these other books. First and Second Corinthians has a particular purpose to write to the Corinthians. First and Second Timothy has a particular purpose to write to Timothy. And so he writes to him in a different way than he writes to other people. The same way that I write in a certain way to a certain person. If I'm texting my group chat for the baseball team, I'll write in a certain way. But if I'm writing a church-wide three-year anniversary letter, I'm going to write that in a different way. And just because those are different styles with different vocabulary and different structures doesn't mean I didn't write it. So it is with the Apostle Paul and his writing. Moving on, how we got the Bible, inspiration. So we need to talk about manuscript history. Just overall, please know that there are roughly 6,000 ancient Greek manuscripts. So 
the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic. And then there was a Greek translation later on. But as far as Greek manuscripts go, and the Greek is where all the fun and games happens. Yes, there's some crazy stuff going on with Old Testament criticism, but that's, we'll talk about what happened with that later on. The main debate revolves around the Greek New Testament. So there's a thing called SBL, Society for Biblical Literature. It's where a whole bunch of non-Christian pagan theologians get together and argue about the literature of the Bible what manuscripts are best, and all this sort of thing. Um, let's talk about how the biblical manuscripts compare to other ancient literature. You know that the Bible is not the only ancient book. There's lots of other ancient books. So I have an image, and this image has um, the Iliad by Homer, um, Herodotus's history, Thucydides' history, Plato's writings, um, Caesar's Gaelic Wars, Livy's History of Rome, Tacitus's Annals, Pliny the Younger's Natural History, and then the New Testament. So you have on this chart or on your, the chart on your phone in your hands, you have the date that the book was written. Let's say Homer's Iliad was written in 800 BC, and then the earliest known copy of that book. 400 BC, which is a time gap of 400 years, and then there are 643 copies. That's a lot of copies. So through that, they're able to discern what Homer's Iliad actually says, because you have 800 or 600 versions of it, then you can compare and see what the true message actually is. But notice how these other books have so few copies. Herodotus's writing has eight copies. Thucydides has eight. Plato's, seven copies. That's not many. Caesar's, Gaelic Wars, there's ten copies. But then you get down to the New Testament, it says 5,366. There's actually more than that. There's different versions of this chart. I had no interest in creating a chart for myself, but there are other versions of this chart that have like 5,800 some, and others will just straight up say 6,000 plus. Why is that? Well, because... If you ever go to Israel, hopefully you will, you will see there's constant archaeology being done. But that's just Israel. There's also ancient Egypt, or modern Egypt, but these ancient archaeological digs. There's Alexandria. There's, um, there, there's all over the ancient world, there are these um, digs. And in those sites, they're, they're always looking and, and finding new things. And so that number of copies of ancient manuscripts goes up. Now, there's also a lot of Roman Catholic churches that are very, very old all around the world, and those churches oftentimes have libraries. In those libraries, they have ancient scrolls. So Codex Sinaiticus is a codex, a manuscript, found in the monastery of St. Catherine at the base of the traditional site of Mount Sinai. What is Codex Sinaiticus? Well, it's an ancient manuscript of the New Testament. So if they could ever get all of the Roman Catholic priests and monks and nuns who are guarding these manuscripts all around the world, not to mention the Vatican, Codex Vaticanus, to just say, hey, here's all, here's all of our treasures, then that number 5,000 some would, would skyrocket even further. You don't need to worry though, because out of the manuscripts we have, we have certainty 
that we have the word of God. Thousands upon thousands of copies. Now, if you look and see the dates written for the New Testament from roughly 50 to roughly 100 AD, you can see as well the time gap. The oldest manuscript that we have, I believe, is written around 125 AD. So that's within 25, 30 years of its time of writing. Now, you might say, oh, well, that's still a big time gap. Well, okay, but I mean, how long has it been since 9-11? 22 years? Could you remember what you did the morning of 9-11? You probably can. Can you remember it accurately? You probably can. So that fact of a 25-year gap should not be a problem for anybody, especially when we're considering our Lord Jesus, not to mention the supernatural preservation of these things. So let's keep moving. Uh, There is this science called textual criticism. Uh, Textual criticism addresses the fact that out of these 5,000 plus manuscripts or nearly 6,000 manuscripts, no two manuscripts are absolutely 100% identical. That's the issue. You've got just stacks and stacks of pages after page after page of the Bible, but there's little differences here and there. So textual criticism is the science of comparing these different manuscripts to discern what the original actually said. We do not have any of the original autographs. The autographs are the original piece of paper that Paul wrote on, the original piece of paper that Moses wrote on. Those are all gone. They've been long gone and destroyed or lost many hundreds of thousands of years ago. But when we consider how many differences there actually are, particularly in the Greek New Testament, if you were to compile them, put them all together, what you would find is that these differences could fit on one sheet of paper. And that includes the ending of Mark. That includes that section in the Gospel of John about uh, the woman caught in adultery. The ending of Mark and the woman caught in adultery, those would make up most of that page. And then beyond that, the discrepancies are the flip-flopping of certain words, such as the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus the Lord. There's no meaning that is lost, whether or not the true inspired word was the Lord Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus the Lord. But in many of these discrepancies, that's what we're talking about. There is nothing lost. There is no uh, meaning that has been corrupted or, or, or taken away. Um, Through this science of textual criticism, we can see that there has not been a conspiracy to change the word of God, that there have not been books changed, but this is not like a long game of telephone. It's not like uh, for 2,000 years, people have just been whispering in the ear of the next person who whispers in the ear of the next person, but rather we have all of the ears of all of the people and we're able to ask each of them, what did you receive? What did you receive? What did you receive? What did you receive? And so then you compare all of their stories, and then you're able to discern what the original actually said. Um, Let's keep moving. Inspiration on the LXX. Does anyone know what LXX means? 
So it's a Roman numeral. Who's up on the Roman numerals? It is 70. Good job. Now, what does that word mean? Well, it means the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? It means the 70. So who were the 70? The 70 were these people who were the authors, the translators, the, transla- or the, the, the scribes who came together to produce the LXX or the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Hebrew Old Testament, I told you the New Testament is written in Greek, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and it was. But in the 2nd and 3rd century BC, before the time of Christ, these these scholars got together and said, hey, the, the common language of our world today is Greek, and we need to make um, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in the language of the people in Greek. So let's get 70 of our best scholars together and produce this document in the Greek language. So that's what they did. So the LXX, or the Septuagint, is that. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It is the Bible that Jesus and the apostles used. Which version did they use? Well, they used the Septuagint, which is abbreviated the LXX. We call the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith the 1689, for short. So the Septuagint is abbreviated the LXX, because that's three letters when you're typing instead of more than three letters for the Septuagint. Um, Now, an interesting thing is that the Septuagint wasn't the greatest translation in every passage. This matters for the people who are like, oh, the NIV is not a real Bible. Only the NASB is the real Bible. It is true that the NASB is the most literal. But the reality is that the Septuagint had sections in it that were about as paraphrased as the message. You know, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message. Sections in it are kind of bad. You're like, ooh. Well, there's sections in the Septuagint that are also kind of cringy, where you're just like, oh boy, this is not, this isn't great. But we know that today using these, using textual criticism to, to compare the Hebrew manuscripts with the Greek manuscripts of the Old Testament, and we can see that certain sections are very literal and certain sections are not so literal. But what you find with Jesus and the apostles is that they, they regarded it as the word of God. They quoted it extensively. When they quoted the Bible, they're quoting the Septuagint. They had no issue with quoting it and saying, the word of the Lord says, it is written. David says, Moses says. So I'm saying this to hopefully push back if you encounter someone who's an angry King James onlyist who would say that only this one version is the true word of God because it must be preserved according to a certain pattern or certain methodology. Uh, Jesus and the apostles were not um, worried in that kind of way. Um, The next thing we need to talk about is the Masoretes. Uh, Point five, the Masoretes. So this took place around the 5th century AD, so some 800 years after the Septuagint. Uh, The Masoretes was a group of people who created the Masoretic text. This is also a team of Jewish scribes. Uh, They copied the scriptures, and then they, after they copied them, they destroyed nearly all of the, their sources. So they get together and they practice textual criticism. They've got all these different versions. They're comparing them, trying to figure out what the original said. 
and then they, they produce the Masoretic text, and then they destroy their sources. Why? Well, it's in order to have a unified Bible. So what is that? That's the Old Testament. The Masoretic text is the Old Testament that our Bibles that we have in our hands are based on. It's the standard Hebrew scriptures. The English Christian Old Testament is the same as the Jewish Old Testament. In the Hebrew, in in the manuscripts, it's the Masoretic text. Now, sure, there's a few older manuscripts that the Masoretes did not know about, that they didn't have access to and they didn't destroy, such as the Isaiah scroll, uh, other scrolls from the Dead Sea. But for the most part, those those, um, documents that they had access to and that they used and compared, after they were done with their writing project of the, the Masoretic text, they destroyed their source documents in order to have one unified version. And their work, the Masoretic text, is what we use today. Uh, Next, we have the Latin Vulgate, Jerome's project uh, around 382 AD. So Jerome is there. He he does a a similar project where he's looking at different versions, different translations, and compiling and putting together a Bible in, for this case, it would be in Latin. Um, after that is Erasmus with the t- Texas Receptus, Texas Receptus, TR for short. He did that a- a- over a thousand years later in 1516. Do you remember what happened in 1517? Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle. So what Erasmus was doing in this project of creating the TR is he created a gr- critical Greek manuscript that would be the basis for the K- King James Version. He didn't know the word King James Version. That was 100 years later. But he is doing the same project of comparing the different manuscripts in order to um, go back to the sources, in order to go back to before the Latin, because they knew the Latin wasn't original, so they want to go back to the Greek. Now, he only had a handful, I think maybe 20-some manuscripts at the time. He didn't have 5,000. He didn't have 6,000 manuscripts. He just had a couple dozen manuscripts, but he did the best that he could with what he had. Now, on our next slide, we have an image, which you also have on your phones. You can zoom in on that. That has um, a lot of helpful information. You can look at that at your leisure. Uh, So at the bottom of it, it says original manuscripts from 1500 BC to 100 AD, Codex Alexandrius, Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, there's lots of others. I, I keep referencing the 5,000, but those are three of the most famous ones. Then there are ancient copies of those, ancient versions, Latin Vulgate, Masoretic Text, um, and then above that, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, Geneva Bible, Bishop's Bible, then the King James, 1611, then there was the 1769. If you have a King James Version in your hand or in the pew in front of you, even if it says 1611, it's not. It's the 1769. Um, then on the right side, there's the Douay, um, Douay Rheims uh, Bible, which is the, um, the Catholic Bible based on Latin Vulgate translation. Then above that, the American Standard Version, ASV. Um, then the English Revised Version. Those both are coming out of the King James Version and then would both lead to like NASB and ESV and these other um, more popular modern translations. Um, There's a stack of translations there at the top of your screen, which you can see. 
Off to the right, you see the Dead Sea Scrolls and other newly discovered manuscripts. The Dead Sea Scrolls were not um, really involved in these translation projects because they were discovered much later. Like they were discovered in the last um, one or 200 years instead of 500 years ago or more. So uh, let's keep moving. Criticism. So we talk about textual criticism. What is textual criticism? Well, it's the science of criticizing the text, but it's actually, um, it's, it's modern implementation of it is not necessarily a good thing. So in, in, same, in the same kind of way that we would use the word like critical theory, critical race theory. So um, textual criticism is this criticize, criticize, criticize in order to destroy and tear down and uh, remove the confidence and the authority of the thing, in this case, biblical text. So we have form criticism, source criticism, and redaction criticism. Form criticism is a critical consciousness, a critical uh, view of the text based on the form of it or the shape of it. So let's say you're looking at the text in Greek and you're analyzing it and criticizing it on the basis of the printed structure of the wording. So think with me about this speech I'm giving right now. If you do a literal word-by-word what is it? Uh, Transcription of everything that I'm saying, you can see certain patterns in what I say. You can find the stuttering, the stammering, the repetitions, the misspeaking. You can find certain phrases that I'll repeat more often. You can do searches of that body of that, that document. And so form criticism is that type of thing where it's analyzing the shape of the printed text in order to make conclusions about whether or not the text is authentic, just based on the form of it, the shape of it. Um, secondly is source criticism. Source criticism, i.e., where did it come from? So did Paul write for Second Timothy? The source critics would say, no, those didn't come from Paul. He didn't write those. Well, I'm here to tell you he did write those. Um, and then there's redaction criticism. Uh, you know of the, the term redaction, it's where you're redacting something, you're, you're deleting things, taking things away. Uh, so redaction criticism um, is this idea that um, things have been taken away, they've been lost, they've been added, that, that there's this um, conspiracy basically and that the truth of the word of God is um, has been lost. So these are the three primary ver- uh, types of criticism. If you were to go to a liberal or secular seminary, which most seminaries are liberal or secular. So if you go to a seminary in New York City, unless it's one of the very small handful of evangelical seminaries. So if you go to um, like Columbia Theological Seminary at Columbia University or um, New York Theological Seminary or Union Theological Seminary or General Theological Seminary, any of these schools, instead of being taught that the Bible is true, you're going to be taught the Bible is false. And then you're going to be taught form, source, and redaction criticism instead of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So you'll be studying a lot of dead German theologians whose names all end in M-A-N-N, like Brueggemann and all sorts of other words. Uh, Moving forward, because we were running low on time, 
modern translations. So we have, uh, there's a range of translations. I wanted this to be in your slide so you can zoom in on it for yourself because it's very impossible to see from the seats. But there is a range of types of translations. There's word for word, thought for thought, and paraphrases. So the most paraphrased Bible translation would be the message, and the most word for word would be an interlinear. If you have the ability to ever get an interlinear, I would encourage you to do so because it's interesting to be able to see Greek and Hebrew lined up over each other, and you can see literally the exact way in which this was constructed. Now, if you don't know the Greek alphabet and you don't know any Greek vocabulary, it's pointless to even do this. So I take it back. But um, the most literal word-for-word translations are NASB, Amplified, ESV, RSV, KJV, NKJV, HCSB, and then you get into Thought for Thought, uh, NRSV, NAB, um, can't read this, KJB, NIV, TNIV, N. CV, and then you start getting into the paraphrases, NLT, NIRV, GNT, CEV, TLB, and MSG. So if you go on BibleGateway.com, you click on translations, and you can like scroll through the dozens and dozens and dozens of those. Um, this little chart here will tell you what type of translation you're looking at. Um, let's keep moving. Point two. So all that is point one. What is the Bible? How to... Um, yeah, what is the Bible? And then number two is how to read the Bible. So we've got hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible or how to interpret the Bible. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, rightly handling the word of truth. The difference between rightly and wrongly handling the scripture is the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher. It is very easy to twist the scripture. How do you do that? Well, you start with your idea in your head, and then you go to the scripture looking for something that proves it. And you're like, oh, well, it says it. It's not exactly what I, it doesn't say exactly what I think it says, but it says what I want it to say. And so then you, you ram it through. So it's important. It's important to rightly handle the word of God. It's important to rightly interpret the word of God. Uh, some of the rules of interpretation are, number one, consider genre. So let's um, move to that point, genre. Um, so there's different genres within the Bible. You need to understand what genre you're reading. There's historical narrative, for example, a story, a record of something that truly happened. There's poetry. Think of Psalms. Poetic scripture uses different types of words, uses images, whereas historical narrative will give you facts and figures. It will tell you that this thing happened, and then after that, the next thing happened, and, and you're, you're, in, you're supposed to read it, taking it at face value. Then there's the Gospels. Of those Gospels, there's the Synoptic Gospels, and then John's Gospel. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These are the ones that are synonymous, or they have synonyms, or they're similar. They, they have the same type of message going on in them, but then John's gospel is very different from the other three. And then after that, you have the epistles. What is an epistle? Well, an epistle is a letter. That's what it means. And it's very different from the gospels. 
And then of those epistles, you have Pauline epistles written by Paul, and then there's the general epistles written by Peter or John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Then beyond that, you have prophetic literature or apocalyptic literature, or if you want to divide those, you've got prophecy and apocalyptic. Or you can call it the same thing, depending on what scholar you're reading. So think about the book of Revelation, think about the prophets in the Old Testament. So it's important to understand the genre that you're reading as you are attempting to interpret it. Uh, Next, consider context, historical context. When was this written in history? So think with me, you're reading the Psalms and you're like, okay, it's poetry. And then like today I read Psalm 21 and presumably David is writing and he says something about the king. Who's the king? Well, it would be him eventually, but before that it was King Saul. So when you read something about a king, don't be thinking about the guy in England who just got coronated recently. It's the wrong one. That's why it's important to consider the historical context. When was this written in history? Next, covenantal. Consider the covenantal context. Which covenant is this particular text under? So when was it written? Who is it written to? And what covenant are they under? What were the rules of the game that have been established for this audience? Is it the Mosaic covenant? Is it the Noahic covenant? Is it the Davidic covenant? So consider the covenantal context. Is this in the new covenant? Next, consider its canonical context. Where in the Bible is this story that you're reading? What book are we in? Keep that in mind always. So on a Sunday when we open up 1 Corinthians, remember, we're in 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians. We're also not in Romans. We're not in the book of Acts. So keeping in mind the canonical context, with the context within the canon of Scripture, where in the Bible are we? But then beyond that, consider the book context. Where in that book is this? Is this the introduction? Is it the greeting? Paul has a certain structure of his epistles. Is this the intro, the greeting, the prayer, the body of the text? Is it the conclusion? Keeping all those things in mind is important to properly understand and interpret the Bible. Beyond that, we need to consider the method. Point three, consider authorial intent. What was the human and divine author's intent? Remember that there is both a human author and the divine author of any given passage. What did they intend to be communicated in their writing? You can actually find clues that indicate this for you within the text. We would be here all night if I was giving examples of each of these things, but that's what, that's what you study in hermeneutics class. Next, historical grammatical method. The historical grammatical method is the standard conservative evangelical method of interpreting scripture. So if you see some sort of biblical literature book or a hermeneutics book or a theology book and it references the historical grammatical book, historical grammatical method, probably sound. In other words, what do these words actually say? We have to consider what the word in the verse says, what that word means, and that's how we interpret 
what is being communicated here. Now, there's another method that needs to be added to your toolbox beyond historical grammatical. You need to add redemptive. Historical grammatical is very popular among dispensationalists because they're like, look, we are people of the book. We're people of the language, the Greek and the Hebrew and the technical words of what is written here. But make sure you don't lose sight of the covenantal arc of scripture. Don't lose sight of what religion we're practicing. We're Christians here. We need to read the Bible as Christians, not as Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, under this redemptive method, there is Christocentric hermeneutics and Christotelic hermeneutics. In order to really unpack the difference between the two, we would need hundreds of pages to do that. I don't think it's a significant difference, but that's why it takes hundreds of pages to distinguish between them. Christocentric versus Christotelic. Telos is the end. So Christotelic is the people who are a little bit more snobby and a little more intellectual about their approach, whereas Christocentrism is a little more Spurgeon-esque. The way Charles Spurgeon is like, look, I'm here to get to Jesus. Don't get in the way between me and my master. I'm at a text, and I'm going to find a way to the cross. And the Christotelic people say, well, actually, we're going to get there eventually, but it might be a little bit longer, and we might not get there till the very end. It's at the telos. It's at the tail end. Okay, that's great. Christocentric is also good, too. Where's where's our biblical basis for that? Our biblical basis for that is Luke 24, when Jesus says, uh, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with his disciples. They don't know that it's him. He does this whole Bible study with them. It says, beginning at Moses, he began to interpret the things concerning himself taught there in the Bible. And that's where biblical scholars say, oh, if only I could be there. If only I could be a fly on the shoulder of one of those apostles, hearing Jesus teach them how to rightly do Christocentrism, how to rightly interpret the Old Testament in light of Christ. Because that's literally the difference between all the theological debates that exist in our world today within conservative Christian circles. Next, point four, intertextuality. Intertextuality is sort of like cross-references. So you go to the next image, you will see this rainbow-looking thing. That is a picture of cross-references within the Bible. Intertextuality is the way in which the text um, references itself. So an Old Testament author, uh, let's say Isaiah, quoting Moses. So this image shows... um, In the very center of it, you see a line going down that line. This is the 1189 chapters of the Bible. That line going down the middle is the longest chapter in the book, which is Psalm 119. And so all these little lines are all the references within the Bible cross-referencing itself. It's very helpful to understand that in order to understand the meaning of the scriptures which is the reason why, as Christians, we should continuously read and reread and reread the Bible. Because the more we know, the more we see. Because we see connections that we didn't see before. Let's keep moving. Point five, law gospel. Um, Oh, that was on the previous slide, but law gospel. So in your method of interpretation, consider, is this particular thing, is it law or is it gospel? Is it a command or is it a promise? Is 
it the result of the promise? Is it God's gift to us? Is it what God does for us? Or is it what God calls us to do or commands of us? If you get those things wrong, that's where you get gospel. That's where you get um, a lot of legalistic type preaching. So it's important to have that category clear. Uh, next point, how to read, how to know God's word. So we were just talking about how to interpret the Bible. Now we need to know how to know it. Well, different ways of knowing the word of God. Point one is reading. Simple enough, but how are you going to read it? Well, there's Bible reading plans. Bible reading plans come in different types, and I've described them as prescriptive and descriptive. So a prescriptive reading plan is one that tells you on January 1st, you're going to read Genesis 1 and Matthew 1 and Psalm 1 and Proverbs 1, and you're going to read these four different places, and that's what you're going to do. On January 2nd, you're going to read the following other verses. And so it has this prescribed path that you are to read. There's different plans like that. There's uh, the McShane plan is the most famous, written, created by a guy named Robert Murray McShane. And there's plenty of others. Uh, on your Bible app, there should be reading plans, and they're, they're all basically derived from the McShane plan because it's the, the, the OG of the Bible reading plans. Beyond prescriptive plans, there's descriptive plans. So I like descriptive plans because what happens is sometimes even your Bible reading can become a source of legalism and it can become a source of law that crushes you under the weight of your inadequacies because you got a day behind and then you didn't have time to go back and reread everything. So then you have this debate, should I go back to catch up where I missed or should I just read what my prescribed plan tells me to read today? And then, oh no, I went on vacation and I didn't bring my print Bible with me and it has my plan in the front. Um, I don't remember what I'm supposed to be reading because I'm not in January anymore and now I'm in June and help, I'm behind. You know, And you start being filled with these, these types of anxious thoughts. At least some of us are. Other people don't have a thought like this has never crossed your mind ever. So I like, des- I like descriptive plans where it's just a list of every chapter in the Bible, and then when you read it, you cross it off. There's an app for that, which I will pull. It's called Bible Tracker. Um, so on Bible Tracker, it has Old Testament and New Testament. So you got Old Testament, you click on Genesis, and then you check the boxes when you read it. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And at the top, it tells you what percentage of the way done you are. So if you don't read it for a couple of days and you just pick it up where you left off, then you can just pick up where you left off and you're not being hit over the head with this feeling of guilt because of your inadequacy in Bible reading. Prescriptive and descriptive. Next, small, several small passages. So... Um, that's sort of like the McShane plan where you're going to read something in the Old Testament, something in the New Testament, something in Psalms and the Proverbs. So you're in a couple different places at the same time. Some people love that. Other people don't because they feel a little disjointed or a little schizophrenic, or a little all over the place. And they prefer just to have one thing and read that one thing from start to finish. So we're going to read John from the beginning to the end. So that would be point three, one book at a time. Another method is starting in the Old Testament. Another method is starting in the New Testament. Really, there's all kinds of different ways you could do this. But point one, reading. Point two, meditation on Scripture. Meditation is not Eastern meditation. When someone says, all right, let's meditate, what do they mean? Well, usually they mean something like, let's, let's find some stillness, let's empty our minds, let's um, listen to ourselves, um, look within for something, that is not 
what the Bible means when it says meditate. Um, that might be a little bit more yoga-esque or Hindu or Buddhist or something, but that is not the biblical concept of meditation. Rather, the biblical concept of meditation is not emptying the mind, but it's filling the mind, and it's filling your mind with Scripture. It is reshaping your mind to think God's thoughts after him. It is to analyze God's word from every possible angle. To meditate on Scripture is like worrying. When you are worrying about a thing and you're thinking, Okay, let's be practical here. You get a text from someone who says, we need to talk. And then you instantly, like your heart is filled with dread and you start thinking about every single interaction you've ever had with that person and what this could possibly be about because they didn't tell you what it was about, which means whatever they want to talk about is bad. Otherwise, they would have said it. And so then, but you're racking your brain trying to think about what it could be. Then you come to a conclusion that it is definitely about this thing. Then you start thinking about all the implications of that. Now my life is over because whatever. I'm going to lose my job because my boss wants to fire me because I came in late six months ago and then I didn't do my timesheet just right. And then I got overpaid and I didn't confess it. And now there are the, the, the reports being filed. Your mind just goes crazy thinking about that particular scenario from every possible angle. What are you doing? You're worrying. What also is that? Well, it's meditating. You're filling your mind with thoughts of that thing, thinking about it from every possible angle. So when we meditate on scripture, you take a passage, a paragraph, a verse, and you think about it from every possible angle. You think about what it says. You think about what it doesn't say. You think about the opposite of the thing that is said. You think about the implications of it. Well, if this is true, then it must mean the following. There's a lot of great um, tools to help you in this. Um, there's the Hall Method, H-A-L-L. I think it's Bill Hall, but I could be wrong in the first name. And that Hall Method is like a couple dozen questions to ask about that particular passage in order to help you with your meditation process on the Scripture. Again, remember, we're, try- we're discussing how to know the Word of God. So if you're going to know the Word of God, you need to read it. You also need to meditate on it. Don't just read it and glaze your eyes over it and never think about anything else the rest of the day, but actually read it and think about it. Think about it from different angles. That's the reason why most of our Scripture reading doesn't do anything for us. It doesn't change us. It doesn't impact us because we're just reading it, checking off our box, and moving on. We're, we're failing to meditate on this. Next, memorization. Um... The Bible actually encourages us to memorize the scripture. It says, I will hide God's word in my heart that I will not sin against you. So how can you memorize? Well, you can memorize individual verses. You can treat the Bible like an encyclopedia of different topics. That's one way to do it. I don't think it's the best way because I don't think that's the author's intent. But that is one approach. I'm going to memorize all the Bible verses about joy. Okay, you can do that. I'm going to memorize all the Bible verses about Peace or fear or lust or work or money or gluttony or whatever. You could do that. And I would encourage you to do that. Memorizing individual verses, memorizing topically, memorizing, but then next would be memorizing paragraphs to memorize scripture in context. Not just to know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me but to know what comes before and after, to know what chapter of the book it's in. It's in Philippians chapter four and that he's actually writing from prison and that he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know how to face 
little and to face plenty, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So understanding the paragraph of the text. Beyond that, you can memorize chapters. When I was a small child, my mother, who homeschooled us, had us memorize scripture every morning. We memorized chapters of the Bible together. Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of liberty of the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the bonds of sin and death. Uh, it's gone right now. But we did that when I was five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. We're memorizing a verse a day and we're just picking up where we left off the next time or last time. And if you really want to go wild, you can memorize books of the Bible. Did you know there's people who've memorized entire movies? Have you ever known someone like that who could quote Princess Bride? What if you memorize the book of Ephesians? How about Ephesians chapter 2? Next, study. So we've talked about reading, meditation, memorization, but beyond that, there's study. Um, Part of studying the Bible, I would encourage you to buy a study Bible. Um, Some favorites would be the ESV study Bible and the Reformation study Bible, but there's lots of them that are are good and fine. Um, It's helpful to understand the backgrounds of the books of the Bible. So for that, you have NTI and OTI, New Testament intro, Old Testament intro. Um, In in this study of biblical backgrounds, you'll also study motifs. A motif is a, a meta narrative or a theme. There's a lot of them, probably 40 or 50 different motifs throughout scripture. So as you're studying and you start seeing certain themes come up, so prophet, priest, and king, or garden, or temple, or lamb, or um, blood sacrifice, or Israel, or um, bride, these are, these are motifs. But if you knew that there was 50 of them, as you're reading through the entire Bible, you can start to see things and find more cross-references from you know, those lines that we were showing. Motifs are a very interesting thing, and they fall under the topic of what we call biblical theology. There's biblical, historical, and systematic theology. Biblical theology is where you would study motifs. There's a whole set of books that are gray that are written on this, uh, on, on these t- biblical theological motifs, and they're some of the most fascinating books I've read. Uh, after that, consider genre. We've talked about that. Consider authorship. Um, consider the dates of authorship, because the dates of the writings of different books does in- impact the interpretation of it, especially things related to prophecy. Like, when was, was this book written before the thing happened or after the thing happened? And if it was written after the thing, then it's not prophecy, it's history. These kind of things are important. Consider also the outlines of the book. That's helpful to remember where we are in the particular uh, passage or or book. Uh, And then consider the theme or the overall message of the book. It's helpful to stop and read the introductory material in your study Bible before you just jump in and start reading. It's helpful to know that the, the book of Amos was written by a guy named Amos who was a shepherd, Now, you're going to see that in Amos chapter 1, I think, verse 1. He says that, but it's helpful just to know this is written by a shepherd, a shepherd of Tekoa. Where is Tekoa? Well, let's find a map and look and see where Tekoa is. Are we talking about someplace in Egypt? Are we talking about Babylonian captivity? Are we talking about Israel? So our study 
it's helpful to be informed, to, to love God with our mind by thinking and not just emoting and looking for a word of inspiration that will make us feel good in our morning scripture reading. Uh, the next point is application. Uh, application is undoubtedly the most difficult thing to do in our biblical study, but the books of the Bible tend to make the application for us. They tend to tell us what the application is. Especially in Paul's writings, he tells us what the application is, and it's usually towards the end of the letters. But also remember that sometimes the application is to rest, to trust, to rejoice, that sort of thing. So not every study, not every time you open your Bible, do you need to have, all right, here's my 12 things to do. Sometimes it's just to read and rejoice and praise the Lord for what he's done for you. And that is a legitimate application. Um, Next, moving on to recommended reading. So uh, you should be aware of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Raise your hand if you have ever read this. All right. I would like you all to read it. Please read it. Um, Go to that website, defendinginerrancy.com. You will find lots of interesting things there. Um, There's a famous book, The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture by B.B. Warfield. That is a very historic, very significant book. It's very big, very thick. Don't worry about that if you haven't read the Chicago Statement. The Chicago Statement's like a couple pages. The Inspiration and Authority of Scripture is hundreds of pages. Um, Fundamentalism in the Word of God by J.I. Packer is a much smaller classic book on this subject. Uh, Harold Linzel's book, Battle for the Bible, is a classic that is very important. Gleason Archer's book is an encyclopedia of Bible difficulties. That is helpful, especially if you're engaged in street evangelism or street apologetics and you start talking to people like, oh, the Bible's full of errors. It has all these contradictions. What about Jephthah's vow? You know Jephthah's vow? Jephthah's vow was when Jephthah told God that the first thing that comes out of his house, he's going to sacrifice to God. And then he comes to the house and his daughter runs out and he's like, oh no. I have to kill my daughter. So the Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties considers all of these difficult stories and what do they mean and what actually happened and how do we answer the atheist who's arguing with us on the streets of New York? So that's why Gleason Archer's book, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties, is helpful. If you have Amazon on your phone, you might want to just like order that book right now. Um, Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger considers the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, how the Bible proves that itself is true. Um, if you are in King James-only circles, if you have a, like a crazy uncle who's into that sort of thing, um, this, this could be a helpful book. If you're not, you don't know anyone who thinks that way, don't, even, don't waste your 10 bucks on the book. But it is a good book. Um, it's just completely unnecessary for people who are not involved in those debates. But if you know someone, if you have a relative who's telling you that the ESV is not actually the Bible or the NKJV is not the real Bible, it has to be the KJV, the 1611, but the person doesn't know that their Bible is 1611, it's not even 1611, it's the 1769. This is a good book for that type of scenario. If you're not in that scenario, don't worry about it. That's authorized, the use and misuse of the KJV by Mark Ward. Now, in closing... Please remember, there there are so many passages in the Bible about the Bible. But remember this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would 
help us, that you would strengthen us according to your word, that we would be people of the book, that we would be people of your word, that we would be formed more and more into the image of your son by the spirit of God through the word of God for the glory of God. I pray that you would use this lesson tonight to help us to strengthen your people. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.